Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Daniel, you gotta see this. Look at this. How have you not seen that yet? Congratulations, thank you. Start from getting everything. Okay, so I can't believe it. What is it? You gotta be kidding me. That's great. Hey, come here, you gotta listen to the story. I have something to show you. First. We gotta tell her mom something. Your mom and my mom. Peter! John! Come see this! The tomb! It's empty! I said, good morning, good morning, good morning. Hallelujah. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb of God. Glory be to God forever and ever. Praise God. Welcome this morning to our services coming to you from, war, um, from Global Art Church. <laughs> oh my goodness. Global Art Church. Go church. Amen. We want to welcome all of you that are here in the sanctuary and for those of you that's joining us by streaming, we welcome you as well. We thank God for you and we pray that God will continue to bless you and reach you and cause you to flourish in Jesus' name. As usual, our vision here at this church is to build a Jesus community and to serve our world. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. All right, so this morning I want to speak on the resurrection and what it means. So if you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, let's just get quickly into the message. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. The resurrection is the most significant event in history. End of story, period. Yeah. Without it, nothing else matters. Paul describes the resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Same chapter, verse 20, let's go there. First Corinthians 15, 20, but now, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that term, first fruits, is an agricultural metaphor that points to the harvest. Richard Guffin, in his book, By Faith, Not By Sight, explains. It says, Paul is saying here, the resurrection of Christ and of believers cannot be separated. Let, let that sink in for a minute. Paul, in making that statement in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, by calling Jesus the first fruit, is making a claim that the believers in Christ and Jesus cannot be separated. Why? Why do we make that assumption? Because to the extent that the metaphor as Paul intends it, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's the first fruit of the resurrection harvest that includes the resurrection of believers. 
Now give me verse 23, same chapter. Verse 23. Thank you. So this thought is further reinforced in verse 23. It says, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, say afterward. Afterward, <laughs> those who are Christ at his coming. So clearly here, if Jesus is the first fruits in agricultural terms, that is intended to send a message that that's not the end of the harvest. That's just the first in line in the harvest, meaning there's much more to come. Now, why does the resurrection matter? Why should we even be bothered about it? How does it change my family? How does it change my marriage? How does it change my job situation? How does it change my business? How? What does it mean besides just saying, well, we have eternal life? How does it impact our daily life? How does the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ affect a life that is inundated with 200 data messages a day? A life that is hurried with errands and chores and obligations and demands. Is the resurrection just something we put and just uh, and kick down the road and say, well, when we die one day, in the by and by, we're going to see Jesus. And in the meantime, we're just left to fend for ourselves? No. John 10, 10, Jesus made it clear. I have come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. In other words, while you are here, Jesus is saying his life and his resurrection should have a bearing on your marriage. On your family, on your jobs, on your studies as a student, as a homemaker, in your business. Every aspect of your life and being should be impacted by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's unpack this this morning. How and why does the resurrection matter? Number one, give me John chapter 10. Verses 17 and 18 in the NIV. John chapter 10, verses 10, no, verses 17 and 18 in the NIV. Why does the resurrection matter? Why should it matter? Why should, why should I not just go to sleep and say, okay, one of these days in the by and by, I'm going to wake up in heaven because I'm a believer and try to fend for myself now? Why? Why does it matter? Number one, it matters because it proves to us that Jesus is authentic. John 17, no, John 10, verse 17. NIV, thank you. The reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. Now, how many people have done that? I'm talking to you. How, how many people do you know that has voluntarily laid down their lives and pick it back up? How many? Verse 18. No one takes it from me. Not even the Roman soldiers. Or the Jews. But I laid down of my own accord. How many people has died that you know that laid down their lives on their own accord? I have authority to lay down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This authenticates Jesus as God. It validates his message. If the messenger can be faulted, then the message can be at fault. So by raising from the dead, we have a validation of the message that they carried. Because if he did not raise from the dead, you can forget all his promises. You can forget all his instructions. You can forget all his commands. But by raising from the dead, he arises to validate every promise he made, every instruction he gave, and therefore is credible. It's credible. I was talking to a young man uh, maybe about a couple of weeks ago, uh, very well qualified and eligible bachelor. And I asked him, I said, when are you going to take the plunge and get to that next phase of your life? 
When are you going to take a wife? I was asking him. Ha, he said, ha, <laughs> it's based on the precedence of some of the people that he knows that he esteemed very highly and, and just the things that's happening in their lives. He said, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm really very doubtful. I, I don't know when and if I will do it. Yes. And he began to give me names. This one, that one, this one, that one. In other words, what he was saying to me is, these people in my life, at some point, I esteem them so highly. They carried a very powerful message. But at the end of the day, their character as a messenger does not validate their message. And therefore, I wonder if everything they said to me is also true or not true. And I had to help redirect his thinking to help him understand that the people he's talking about are imperfect vessels. And therefore, because they are imperfect, they may have carried a perfect message, but in an imperfect vessel. And therefore, it should be careful not to invalidate the message because the vessels are imperfect. That's what Jesus referred to in Matthew 23. Don't go there, I'll just tell you, concerning the Pharisees. He said, do what they say to do. What they say, do it. He said, but them, ignore them. Why? He said, because they're hypocrites. So I'm saying to you, don't allow the people you esteem, the people you respect, the people you say, oh, wow, pastor this, or doctor that, or blah, 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 blah. Don't say because they are saying something and then they have a shortcoming or they fail in some area of their life, that means the message is not good. Be careful about that. Amen? Jesus is authentic. He's the son of the living God. Number two, number two, why does the resurrection matter? Number two, reason that it matters is he forgave our sins. If he was not God, then he had no authority to do that. And the fact that he, as God, died and rose from the dead validates his authority to forgive our sins. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Thank you. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Woo! Then verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. But, you may, but, that you may, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, verse 11, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He forgives sins. He forgives sins. The authority was there to do so. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us that through the blood of Jesus, by the power of the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven because of the abundance of God's grace. Now, how does being forgiven impact me in my family, in my marriage, on my jobs, in my business, in my studies? How? How does it impact me? Because sin is a barrier, it's an obstacle to thriving, to living in harmony. Sin, oh my goodness, thank you Jesus. Do you know the reason God hates sin? Many of us, especially those of us of this position, we have a romance with sins. When I say romance with sin, I mean in the sense of sin management. For some reason we just think, Sin and God. God is just too holy. He cannot look at sin. He is holy. And he hates sin. Absolutely. But do you know why? Have you ever asked yourself the question why God hates sin so much? The reason God hates sin is because God understands what sin does to me and you. Oh, you didn't get it. You did not get it at all. No, no, you didn't get it. The reason God hates sin is not because it separates me from, 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 from God. Let me debunk that right away. Because Adam sinned and God said, when I look for him. No, that's not the reason. That's the traditional Christian thinking. Ah, if you sin, how glory to God. You will not see the whole face of God again. Really? God went and looked for Adam. Adam, where are you? He sinned. The first sin recorded in the scriptures. That's not the reason. Now, of course, I'm telling you sin is bad. Don't sin. I'm telling you that it's no good. But let me help you understand why God hates it. God hates it because of what sin does to me and you. 
It brings us sickness, it brings us heart pain, it brings us devastation, it brings us destruction. And God says, because I love you so much, because I love you guys so much, I hate to see anything that will mar and destroy and, and affect my affection for you. That's the reason hate sin. He does not hate it for his sake. Because sin cannot touch God, cannot do anything to God. But he hates it because what sin does for us. Do you understand that? God hates sin because sin destroys our lives. Okay. You still don't get it yet. You have children. You have, you have a child. Okay. Uh, maybe a young girl, a toddler, three-year-old, four-year-old. Would you put that girl in the hand of a, of a pedophile? No. Why? Why would you not do that? Why would you not hire a pedophile for your nanny to keep your three-year-old? Because you understand the tendency of the behavior of that person and what they can do to your child. So you do everything to protect your child from that pedophile because you know what they can do. That's how God looks at sin. In order to protect me and you, and to help us be all he has made us to be, he hates sin because sin will destroy us, it will point us away from him and from his desired goal for us. So how does the resurrection impact me because I'm forgiven? It impacts me because now, because I've been forgiven, number one, I can forgive others. Number two, sin brings guilt. It brings shame. It brings condemnation. And when God destroys the power of sin in my life and your life, automatically you are free from the guilt, you are free from the shame, and you are free from the condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who works, after, who works not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, just to be sure, the fact that God forgives our sins does not mean we have universal salvation. Let me make sure I make that clear. Amen. My goodness. If you were here last Sunday, you understand and appreciate the Lamb of God. Amen. The Lamb of God, how he was slain from the foundation of the world, Romans 13, 8. The Lamb of God, how we saw him in John chapter 1, verse 29. The Lamb of God that we see at the end of the ages in Revelation chapter 5. What, does that, what am I trying to show you? The Lamb was slain before the world, in the world, and at the end of the world. What's the implication? The Trinitarian of being, of seeing a lamb slain in the scripture. What's, what's, what, what's the implication? Your sins past, foundation of the world. Your sins present, Calvary 2000 years ago. Your sins future, Revelation chapter 5, all taken care of. Now, now, let me make sure I make this clear to you. Because we talk about sins being forgiven, past, present, and future. Don't misunderstand that to say that means everybody is saved. That is not true. Universal forgiveness, yes. But a forgiveness or pardon cannot be effective until the recipient accepts it and receives it and believes it. Therefore, you must be born again in order to receive and to maintain the power of the forgiveness that was rendered. So number one is authentic. Number two, forgive our sins. Number three, oh, I love this one. John chapter 20. Let's go there quickly. John chapter 20. In verse 17, John 20, 17, hallelujah. When Jesus rose from the dead, give that to me please in the NKJV. John 20, 17, thank you. Jesus came out of the grave. Jesus said to her, that's to Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, watch this, the language, the language changes. I'm ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Whoa. So right there in that passage, we see, number three, that Jesus modeled for us community. For the first time, he, Jesus, acknowledges that his father is our father. And that his God is our God. So right there and then we see Jesus instantly 
adopting you and I as believers into the family of God. It's not just his father any longer. It's his father and my father. It's God and your God. Amen? So Jesus instantly upon his resurrection gave me and you the opportunity to be adopted into the family of God. And as a result of that, build a community. We saw that in Luke chapter 24, verse 30. I, I won't turn to it. I need to move on. We saw him on the road to Emmaus breaking bread with the two disciples. Community. Further on in John chapter 21, verse 12, we saw him having breakfast on the beach with his disciples. What is he doing? Building community. Jesus made time for relationships. He was never too busy to stop and to show that he cared. And so as his followers, you and I are called to be intentional in serving people, in serving our families, serving in our workplaces, and serving in our cities and our nation and the world. It was very intentional. Look, listen, what happens in the family unit? We care for one another. We love one another. We serve one another. And Jesus demonstrated that for us here. He demonstrated that for us. Oh, by the way, let, let me go back to that number one. Something just came to me just now about his authenticity. About the fact that Jesus is authentic, is the savior of the world, is God, and is credible. I really want to just advise us. And we have a lot of uh, culture mold, molders in the United States. Thank God for the Dr. Fields, for the Oprah Winfields, and the list goes on and on, and people that many of us listen to, and we take their advice as gospel. Be careful. Be careful. The way the, re the resurrection affects your life your marriage, your families, your business, your school. The way of is by taking whatever else you're hearing and bringing it and drive side by side with the word of God. If he does not align with what Jesus said as a credible one, discard it. It's not going to last. It's a fad. All these folks telling us about relationships and you look at their lives, they are, they are wreck. Are you going to take what they say and run with it? Be careful about that. He's authentic, he forgives our sins, he moved our community, showed us how to love one another, care for one another, and serve one another in our workplaces, in our cities, in our nations, and in the world. Number four. Number four, the resurrection. What does it matter? It matters because it redeems our mistakes. Thank God. The resurrection matters because it redeems our mistakes. You see the example of Peter, even though he stumbled in his faith, he did not cancel out his identity. Woo, glory to God. <laughs> in the same way, you and I can trust in God's power that is made perfect in weakness. He redeems us from our mistakes. Peter blew it big time. We saw that in the scriptures when we studied on Peter a few weeks ago. But did that stop him? No. No. Jesus rose from the dead to affirm Peter and to empower Peter to be a pillar in the church. What mistake are you grappling with? What in your past seems to be an obstacle for your future that's causing you trepidation, that's causing you nightmares, and you're saying, I made this mistake, I was wrong here, I was wrong there, and you're not allow you're allowing that situation to define you rather than move forward in your future. He redeems our mistakes. God is the only one that I know that can take a mistake and turn it around and use it as a platform for your promotion. Amen. If you got your mind right, and if you look on him. Amen? It's authentic. It forgives our sins. It molds communities. It redeems our mistakes. Number five. Go with me to John chapter 21. John 21 verses 1 through 3. Thank you, Jesus. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, 
Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you. They went out immediately and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Say nothing. nothing. They caught absolutely nothing. But their nothingness would not define them. Amen. Just like your nothingness in the seasons of your life do not define you. Amen. Verse 11. Same chapter, verse 11. So, of course, Jesus told them to launch out the net into the deep. And so here in verse 11, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to a land full of large fish, 153. Amazing. Why would the scripture give us the exact number? Why? We're going to contrast that in a minute. 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Now let's contrast this passage very quickly with Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Luke chapter 5, thank you very much. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have told all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the night. And when they had done so, or rather, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Notice, the number was not given. Just a great number of fish. And then we have another detail that should be very intriguing. And the, their net was breaking. When we put these two scriptures together, in this passage we just read in Luke chapter 5, number one, the number of fish was not given. Number two, we are told that the neck was breaking. So if you're a fisherman and your neck is breaking, what happens to the fish you caught? You lose them. You lose them. It's as it's as it's as it's as which it's like which you never went fishing. <laughs> you have an empty net to show for it. It's like many of us. You go to work on Friday. You get paid. It's like there are holes in your pocket. Before you get home, the money is all gone. I paid this bill. I paid that bill. I paid that one. You make two hundred dollars. You get home with seventeen dollars. That's a serious problem. Because you still have 30 days to go for the end of the month. Go back to John 21. Pay attention to what we just read. John 21 again. In verse 11. Verse 11. Thank you. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to a land full of large fish. Large. Not your tiny sardines. You know those sardines are annoying things? These are annoying things. You can take a handful and put it in your mouth. It's got sardines. Very annoying. When you're really hungry, those are these annoying. <laughs> Full of large fish, 153. And although there were many, the net was not broken. Two things I want to show you. Number one, that in, since the resurrection, your provision is guaranteed. Amen. The resurrection guarantees your provision. Not because you are begging, not because you are asking. In fact, it's the one saying, are your needs met? Do you need anything else? Because in these passages, both in Luke chapter 5 and John 21, Jesus was the initiator. He was the one that said to them, do you have any fish? Do you have any meat? And he did a miracle to provide for them. You see, in this family of God, your provision is guaranteed. Amen. You don't have to talk. You don't have to cry. You don't have to beg. It is part of your redemption. Amen. But not only that. Not only that, not only does he provide for you, Jesus wants me and you to know that because of what he did, we are eternally secured under the new covenant. Luke chapter 5 was the old covenant, the law of Moses. Therefore, when they caught the fish, their net broke and they lost it. You could be lost in the Old Testament. You could be lost under the law. But under the new covenant, there were large fish, we were told. 153. And the Bible was intentional in helping us understand that even though there were so many, the net did not break. You are eternally secured. 
Now, is this a license to say because I'm secured I should go and do some, something crazy? No. No. Let me give you a good example. The Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco was built, oh, I don't know, maybe 1937, something like that. During the construction of that bridge, a few people, maybe about nine people, fell off from the bridge and died. And by the way, that's the lowest number of people, that's the lowest number of fatality of any bridge built in the world of that kind, yeah. So what did they do? In order to prevent further deaths, they created a safety net around the bridge so that subsequently if anybody fell, the bridge cut them. So what did that do to the workers? Did they become more careless so they can just fall down and fall? No! As a result of that safety net, what happened to them? They became more productive, they became more confident, and they were able to do a better job because they didn't have to fear about falling and dying. As a believer, when you understand your sins are forgiven, that you don't bear the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that the enemy wants to heap upon you, he does not make you to run out there and drink a whiskey and get drunk and kill somebody. No! He helps you to appreciate what God has done in your life and therefore you take precautions, you take wisdom to walk circumspectly so that you honor the man or the person who has loved you so much. That's what it's done for me. It's helped me to be focused on Jesus and to appreciate what he has done and to appreciate how much he loves me and therefore to guide me to greater, deeper Christian virtues. It's not a lying sense or occasion to sin. No, absolutely not. So number five, he provides and gives us eternal security. Number six, why the resurrection matters. Jesus, in his resurrection, comforted the broken. He comforted the broken. Let's go to John chapter 20. We may have to read a few verses on this one. John chapter 20 from verse 1. He rose from the dead and comforted the broken. John chapter 20, 0. John chapter 20. Thank you. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. Please pay attention to what Mary is telling them. Don't read this with your traditional Christian mindset. I have to tell myself the same thing. Let me read verse 2 again. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple to whom Jesus loved and said to them, what did she say to them? They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. That was the message, right? Please pay attention to that. Verse 3. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter. It must have been very heavy. <laughs> and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the living clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the living clothes lying there. Verse 7. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, look at verse 8. And I hope you connect verse 2 and verse 8 now. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. What did they believe? <laughs> I'm going to ask that question one more time. I hear two answers. And, and, <laughs> what did they believe? Go back to verse 2. <laughs> I love it. Go back to verse 2. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have left him. 
So go back to verse 8. What did they believe? Absolutely. You see, this, and I'm glad I've made us go through that again. As in traditional Christianity, we believe certain things and we bring that to the scriptures. No, they did not believe he rose from the dead. Verse 9 will be ironclad proof. Give me verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must raise again from the dead. So they believe the rumor. They have taken away his body from the tomb. And we don't know where they put it. They looked and said, oh my goodness, the body is gone. You are right. I believe it's gone. Huge. Do you see this simple exercise? Yes, sir. Even me, I've read that for years. And I thought, they believe, they believe. No, they didn't believe Jack. <laughs> Look at verse 10. Then, why then? Because now they are scared to death. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. What have, been, what have they been doing since crucifixion? They're hiding. So now they are, they are, they, they, they're heightened a lot. Hey, the body's gone. We don't know what's going to happen. If they took him, they're coming for us. They went into hiding. To my point, the resurrection, Jesus, comforts the brokenhearted. Because we sit down in verse 19, same chapter. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so we know it's the same day, when the doors, that was, when the doors were shut, <laughs> when the disciples were assembled, <laughs> what did they shut the door? <laughs> Man, I, I, I can imagine the bolt. They will put it. They will shut it and put a bolt. Crowbar. Thank you. Fear. Many of us have been paralyzed with fear. Fear. You cannot move. You can't take a business decision. You can't do this. You can't do that. What? Fear. 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 Fear and doubt. Fear and doubt. They are cousins. You fear. You doubt. You doubt, you fear. They are terrible cousins. So these disciples, to whom Jesus has preached for three years, I will die, be buried, raise again, be, die, be buried, raise again. It's happening live and direct in their presence. And they're afraid. They're hiding. The doors were shut when the disciples were assembled. For fear of the Jews, you see it. I didn't make it up. I'm not a prophet Winfield. You see that? I'm not telling rumor. It's right there. And by the way, Oprah does a lot of good things. So I'm not saying anything to denigrate her. She does a lot of good things. I'm just saying to us, let's align our thought with the word of God. That's, that's all I'm saying. Amen? I want to get that clear. For fear of the Jews, they were afraid. The people who got Jesus, they come after us. Some of us, you said your grandfather died of cancer. Your great-grandfather died of diabetes. I wonder if that same thing is coming. Forget that! You are not your grandfather. You are, you are not your great-grandfather. My father don't have what I have. In his time and season, he walked in the light and revelation he had. But thank God for new, a dawn of a new day. Thank God for a new revelation. Don't allow these things to haunt you. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I said the same thing to you this morning. Peace be unto you. In the name of Jesus. Peace is never the absence of trouble. No. Peace is never the absence of trouble. It's just the presence of God in the midst of the trouble. And that makes all the difference. The point I want to make is, Jesus comforted the broken. When he came back from the dead, he wasn't frustrated that his disciples had not understood his plan. I know as a human being, if I give Revelation something to do and she does not understand it, I know how, how easily I can get frustrated. Jesus was not like that. Your children, you give them instructions. They go out and blow it. And he starts saying, do you, know, do you know whose son you are? Whose daughter you are? How would you behave like that? We get easily frustrated. They get frustrated. 
are few, it's so short. But Jesus for three years taught this man, share with them intimately, and yet, when he counted the most, they ran. Not only did they run, they went and hide and shut the door. But notice what he did. You can build all the walls you want around yourself. <laughs> oh, glory to God. You build a wall against debt, a wall against bad relationship, a wall against fear. All kinds of human mechanisms that we build around ourselves. I remember when a German preacher came. He came to my house. And as he was leaving, he said, hey, Pastor Bank, I hate to ask you this question. What kind of uh, automatic thing do you have to, to, to make uh, friends come out of your ground and protect your house? I said, I don't have, there's nothing like that. My house is not fenced. Ah. So, so we drove for about five minutes. He came back to the question. He said, I'm, I'm still trying to understand. You are telling me you live in a house that's not fenced. I said, no. Ah, we are just there. Ah. He left it again. Another five minutes. He came back and said, how do you sleep at night? I said, what, what do you mean? He said, you live in a house. There's no fence. There's no uh, barricade against your windows. And you go to sleep. I said, why not? Ah. He said, because where is coming from? They spend more on building fences than the house itself. The homes in some of these places, the fences are more expensive than the home. Why? Fear. They are afraid. So they have built a wall. They said, we are protected from the Jews. Glory to God, they can't catch us here. What did Jesus do? They did knock on the door? No. Resurrection power. Zoom, it was him. And I said the same thing to you right now. The fears and the things that has tormented you, Jesus is walking through those walls to bring salvation, to bring redemption, to bring comfort. In the name of Jesus, men may trust in chariots, women trust in horses, but we remember the name of the Lord our God. He comforted their brokenheartedness. Walk through their walls to bring them assurance. So Jesus consoled the woman weeping at the empty tomb. He is Thomas Doubt. He spoke words of life and peace. They were all afraid. And so today, Jesus still has grace for our questions and confusion. He still draws near to you and I when our hearts are broken. Don't ever forget that. Don't allow your pain and your fears and your doubt to keep you away from him and run you away. No, no. If anything, he wants to come in. He wants to come closer to you. Lastly, number seven, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Verse 18, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. As shortly I say to you, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So not only do we see that Jesus is authentic, that he forgives our sins, model community for us, redeems our mistakes, provides and gives us eternal security, comforts us as broken people, lastly, he instructs and empowers us. And he says to us, right before he ascended to heaven, go and make disciples of nations. That's why we do missions in this church. But not only that, I don't want you to just relegate this charge to just missions. You and I have been empowered with the infallible, unadulterated word of the living God. Amen. A word that brings deliverance, that brings salvation, that brings joy, that brings prosperity. As you go out this afternoon to the restaurants, maybe to your home or to the marketplace, there are people who are waiting to hear this message. Amen. 
They are waiting to know that their sins have been forgiven. That's the most, that's what goodness is all about. People just don't know. They think they need to make penance to receive forgiveness of sins. It's the best kept news in all the universe. People are waiting to be set free to know that there's a God who loved them so much and paid the price in full for their forgiveness. That's the good news. The goodness is not condemnation. The goodness is not telling people they're going to hell. No, that's not good. What's, what's good about that? They already know they are going. They just need a detour. Something, someone to take them away from hell and to take them to heaven. And Jesus has committed that message to you and I. He wants you and me to carry and champion that message all over the world. I'll close now. I know I, know I went a little bit behind my time. Brother Sam, you need to come here. Why are you sitting over there? In Exodus chapter 2, I just want to close with this thought. This is the bow that ties everything together. Exodus chapter 2, in verse 5. Give it to me in the NLT. Thank you. You know this story. Pharaoh in Egypt had given instruction for all the Hebrew male who were born to be dumped in the river to kill them. Moses' mother gave birth to him. Kept him because she thought it was goodly for three months. And then she could no longer keep him. What did she do? She put him in a bulrush and put him at River Nile while the sister Miriam watched from nearby. Providentially, Pharaoh's daughter went to take a bath at the river. Verse 5, let's pick it up from there. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river. Her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to go get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children. Then the baby sister approached the princess. Shall I go get and find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me. The princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Verse 10. Later when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter. Look at the word. Who adopted him as her own. The princess named him Moses. For she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Why am I closing with this? I'm showing you what your adoption looks like. When Jesus adopted you and I, this is what happened to us. Before the adoption, we were doomed to destruction. Because the wages of sin is death. But because Moses' mother trusted God, put the boy in a river, what did we see happen? Number one, what we saw in that situation, his mother was paid to nurse him. She was compensated because she was faithful to trust God. And I'm saying to you in closing this morning, God will be faithful to reward your faithfulness. In the name of Jesus, when you trust him, you will lack no good thing. Because that's who he is. We know that through the few years that she kept Moses, about three years, we are told, she put some stuff in that boy. Exactly. So that when Moses became older, he remembered his destiny. He remembered where he came from. Parents, parenting is not just changing diapers. It's an opportunity for you to put seed of the word of God in your children.
to sing praises to them, to put the word of God in them. You think they don't understand? Oh my goodness. You don't understand the, 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 you don't understand the dynamics of the spirit of God. Yes, they understand. They may not be able to articulate in words, but their spirit catches it. Because where else would Moses have learned about Hebrews? Three years, the mother put it in him. And when his time came, he remembered. And knew where he came from. All you guys sitting out here that came from across the ocean, don't ever forget where you came from. Don't allow the convenience of Egypt to get you to become complacent where you don't understand why God brought you here. Destiny is calling on you to respond and do something. We talk about missions, 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 and you guys are just sitting as if like dull, like deaf people. You don't understand that we together, collectively, have a responsibility before God. Amen. Your brothers and sisters are lavishing and dying to a Christless eternity. While you sit here, you're comfortable and drive your Lexus. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> explode like that. Number three, glory to God. In that verse 10, he received a new name from his adoptive mother. Obviously, for three years living with his mother in the Hebrew Goshen, you don't think they had a name for him? His mother must have given him some name, but you can't find that in scripture. Why? <laughs> Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. Paul said, I know no man after the flesh. Don't talk to me about what I did before I became born again. Talk to me about what I'm doing now in my new creation identity. His new name, Moses. Because his adoptive mother gave it to him. Jesus is giving you a new name. And as a result of that, because of his adoption, he received royal education and privilege. You don't understand what your adoption means. <laughs> From the day Moses was carried into the palace, he didn't have to break his sweat any longer. Automatic promotion, royal education, royal privilege. That's what's waiting for you when you understand who you are in Christ Jesus. And so Father, I just want to thank you for this time. I bless your name for God for your, your message. Helping us to understand why the resurrection matters. Help us understand the adoption we have in and through you, Christ Jesus. Bless you, Lord God, that this revelation will change us for time and eternity to live at your purpose and to be a blessing to generations to come. I thank you for this. I bless your name, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.